the Bible is brutally honest. It makes no attempt to whitewash the world or to erase R-rated acts of violence or questionable decisions from the historical record. That's what makes its stories so mesmerizing. It's a bit like the new Planet Earth series on Netflix, Planet Earth 2. If you haven't watched it yet, it'd be a great way to spend your Monday. Um, Like, who wouldn't want to have a front row seat watching two full-grown Komodo dragons fight for dominance? Uh, Just to have a sneak peek into the wildness of creation. That's a little bit what reading 1 Samuel is like. It's a masterpiece of biblical literature. Some would say it's the best book ever written in the Hebrew language. And why? Because of its shocking honesty. You see, in the political framework of the great land powers surrounding ancient Israel, the king was either a god, an incarnation of a god, or a sort of semi-mythic human king who was elected by the gods to mediate between the human and the divine. That, by the way, is why there's no historical record of the exodus in, in the history books of Egypt. It's because it was too embarrassing. Because it totally discredited the godlike status and value of Pharaoh. But the book of 1 Samuel, what it did was it, it actually, in an unprecedented way, it upended this formula. Because while the other nations were saying that the king is a god, Israel was saying that God is the king. And that shift alone is enough to just make incredible literature. Because now we can take an honest look at Israel's first two kings, starting this morning with King Saul. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 15. And as you turn there, let me catch you up to speed, or at least try. Our story left off last week in chapter 8 with Israel demanding a king. And now God has granted their request. He's given them a tall, dark, and handsome country boy named Saul. The ladies loved him. The men, not so much. They wanted somebody a bit more sophisticated. But here's the thing about country boys. Do you have any country boys in here? Here's the thing about country boys. They know how to fight. And Saul was a military master. Just look for a moment at chapter 14, verse 47. Just before our passage. Chapter 14, verse 47. Now when Saul had secured his grasp on Israel's throne... He fought against his enemies in every direction, against Moab, Ammon, Eden, the kings of Zobah, and the Philistines. And wherever he turned, 
he was victorious. Yes. So for the first time in centuries, Israel was finally safe. Their morale was up. Their economy was growing. And God had given them rest from all of their enemies. Almost. That's actually where our story picks up in chapter 15. Almost. In verses 2 and 3, God gives Saul this startling command. I felt it in the room as it was read. Verse 2, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. I have decided to settle accounts with the nation of Amalek for opposing Israel when they came from Egypt. Now go and completely destroy the entire Amalekite nation. Men, women, children, babies, cattle, sheep, goats, camels, and donkeys. It couldn't be clearer. Like, wow. Wow. This makes us really uncomfortable. What's going on here? Let's try to put it into perspective briefly. The Amalekites were an extremely violent people. Terrorists. When Israel was leaving Egypt, the Amalekites attacked them at the back of the wagon train where they knew the most vulnerable people of the caravan would be women and their young children. And this kind of thing, this kind of behavior had only intensified through the centuries. The Amalekites had become known for their unprincipled violence toward weak people. They were the symbol in the world of all that stood against, all that opposed God's plan to redeem the world. So what would you do? How do you go about stopping a group like the Amalekites? You have to stop them with force. And we're not talking about U.S. foreign policy here. We're talking about Israel. You have to stop them with force. But lethal force? And lethal force of this magnitude destroying even women and children and animals? Apparently so. It's an incredible, it's an incredibly sad reality that a culture can become so poisoned by evil that it must be completely destroyed. And God is sending Saul on this mission as an instrument of divine justice. There's not going to be any glory here. Israel will gain no plunder, no treasure, no timber, no slave labor, whatever, from this battle. It's all being devoted to God. They're handing these people over to God. So this isn't about imperialism. It's about justice. But can I tell you what I think is really going on here? I think that the author here has just lured us into a playful trap. Do you see what he's just done? He's put us 
in Saul's shoes. He's gotten us to judge God, hasn't he? To doubt whether God really knows best. It's the first sin of humanity, right? Adam and Eve doubted that God really knew what he was doing, and we continue to flirt with it today. God, are you really calling me to be single? God, are you sure that she's supposed to be in charge? God, are you seriously sending my kid to that school? Those questions aren't always wrong. Jesus prayed in the garden, essentially, do I really have to die? But the danger is when these questions lead us to take matters into our own hands. Which is exactly what Saul does in verses 7 and 8 and 9. Then Saul slaughtered the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the Amalekite king, but completely destroyed everyone else. Saul and his men spared Agag's life and kept the best of the sheep and goats, the cattle, the fat calves, and the lambs. Everything, in fact, that appealed to them. They destroyed only what was worthless or of poor quality. You see, Saul was never an out-and-out rebel against God. He always did most of what God commanded. Only on a few seemingly minor, insignificant occasions did he substitute his own will for God's. And even then, he had totally plausible reasons for them. But of course, most disobedience is like that. It's not absolute defiance, but a sort of nibbling away at the edges of God's authority. All sin begins with the idea that we know better than God. We like to put our own spin on what God says, don't we? Make it a little more Drew, you know? God says no sex before marriage. We say, no problem. Lots of creative ways around that. God says no stealing. And we say, yeah, but what if it's already stolen? God says keep the Sabbath holy. We say Sundays are a day of rest. Right? I'm tired. I have a friend who's recently been training me at the gym. That's probably obvious, but... Sometimes he'll tell me to do something, but I'll think I have a better idea. And he'll always say back, whatever, man, I'll never tell you how to live your life. And that's like music to our ears, isn't it? I'll never tell you how to live your life. We don't want anybody telling us what to do. We want options. We will tolerate suggestions. But we definitely don't want commands. That's way too disempowering. No, we want to live our own lives. We want to be our own people. We want to be our own king. Saul wanted to be his own king. But that wasn't the deal. And this is another way that Israel was different 
from the surrounding nations. Their king wasn't really the king. He was more like a deputy. Look back for a moment at verse 1. Samuel says, It was the Lord who told me to anoint you as king of the people, Israel. Now listen to this message from the Lord. Saul's job was not to be autonomous. It wasn't to call his own shots. His job was to listen to his commanding officer, which was God speaking through Samuel. And so when Samuel hears that Saul has failed to do that, he's deeply moved. He's grieved and he stays up all night crying out to God. He knows that he has to confront him. Maybe you can relate to that. If you've ever known in advance about a difficult conversation that you have to have with somebody, or maybe you're a parent whose child has left the faith and it grieves you to the point of tears, that's a little bit what Samuel is feeling at this point. But here's where the story gets really interesting. It's actually one of the most intriguing, elaborate dialogues in the whole Bible, because we kind of feel sorry for Saul, don't we? I mean, even though I tried to explain the whole kill the Amalekites thing, um, it's still hard to blame Saul for doing what seems to us like the equivalent of running a yellow light. And yet, God takes disobedience very seriously, especially when it's the king. And Saul knows it. He knows it. He sees Samuel coming to meet him, and he's just got guilt written all over his face, doesn't he? Verse 13, Barbara read it so well. When Samuel finally found him, Saul greeted him cheerfully. May the Lord bless you, he said. I have carried out the Lord's command. And Samuel says, oh yeah? Then what's all the bleeding of sheep and goats and lowing of cattle I hear? Where's the beef? Or why the beef? Weren't your instructions clear, Saul? God told you to leave nothing alive. So the cross-examination begins, and it is a wild goose chase. Saul has been caught red-handed, But he doesn't own up to it. He tries to weasel out of it by making excuses. And I can see at least five. And the first one is blame shifting. Verse 15, Saul says, It's true that the army spared the best of the sheep, goats, and cattle. Don't look at me. They did it. And we see this all the time in young children. Audrey, did you steal your sister's toy? Well, Juliana, no, that's not what I ask. Well, mommy said no. And we never quite grow out of this, do we? Drew, why did you send that nasty email? Well, see, I talked it over with Mike and Laura, and no. No. Don't bring others into this. This is about your actions, not someone else's. We're so good at this kind of thing, aren't we? It's like wine. We get better at it with age. Saul says, 
I didn't do it. My army did it. They're the ones who spared the sheep and goats and cattle. And all the while, you know what he does? He conveniently forgets to mention the fact that he spared the worst of the plunder, King Agag. He doesn't mention Agag at all here. He's a natural, isn't he? He's a master manipulator. But when Saul isn't shifting blame, he's shifting attention. He creates a diversion. Verse 20. Uh, I brought back, okay, I brought back King Ahag. Or what's his name? Whatever. Agag. The G's are sometimes pronounced as H's. <laughs> I brought, okay, I brought back King Agag. But I destroyed everyone else. So Saul's starting to squirm. He's saying, okay, but look what I have done. Right? Partial obedience is just a form, another form of disobedience, isn't it? Like, yes, I yelled at that person at small group, but at least I was at small group. <laughs> or, yes, I got drunk this weekend, but I was with my wife. That's not how it works. It's like saying, yes, I shoplifted this one item, but look at all the other items I didn't steal. I had the chance. I'm really good at this. So it just doesn't come out right on the balance sheet. No judge would be fooled by that. She would not let it slide. Why do we think God would let that slide? We think that we're diverting him? Just the games that we play. The third excuse is what's called the God card. If yeah, you've heard of this one. So Saul says, uh, they're going to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. Right? Not even the Lord my God. We're going to sacrifice them to your God. Uh, that is, it may technically have been a sin, but my motives were good because I did it for God. People gossip and then say, I just thought somebody should know. Uh, people break the speed limit to not be late for church. I mean, that's why I wear my collar when I drive here. I'm like, are you really going to do this right now? It's 9.59, man. People exaggerate in order to make their testimony sound more impressive. All for God, right? But God doesn't need us to break his laws in order for his will to be done. That's already been worked into the system here. So the God card doesn't work. What about another excuse? The common sense story, right? Killing all those animals, Saul would say, seems such a waste. So we decided that, it was better to use, uh, that this was better use for them. It made sense. Surely you, Samuel, can see that it was the very best thing to do, the right thing to do under the circumstances. But many of the things God tells us to do will not make sense to us. Noah building the ark, Abraham leaving his family. That's the whole notion of faith. It's, it's trusting in God and obeying him, especially when things don't make sense or else it's not trust. And yet, the Christian life isn't about crawling through broken glass. I, 
I've found in my experience with God that he often waits to bless us until we do the unsensible thing that he's called us, that he's called us, called us to do. He waits for us to take away our insurances, our safety nets. And once he does that, he will normally open the floodgates of his gifts to us because we're living by faith. And that's the way that we relate to him. What would Saul's kingship have been like if he had obeyed God in this instance? Do we really think that God was withholding things from him? But we'll never know. Because Saul did the seemingly sensible thing. Or to use the language of the book of Judges, he did what was right in his own eyes. Fifth, Saul excuses his sin because of fear. Verse 24, I was afraid of the people, Saul says. Now, was Saul really afraid of the people? I don't know. Was this just an excuse? Ultimately, it doesn't matter. Fear of others is no justification for sin. Jesus put it bluntly and brilliantly. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. But wouldn't it be nice if we could dodge responsibility for our actions with fear? Youth, wouldn't this be nice? We could say things like, I did it to fit in. Or I watched it because everybody else was. Or this is the one I did. I just joined them because I didn't want them to feel like I was judging them. Let me tell you something from experience. If you let fear be the guiding principle in your life, you will be a miserable person. You will always be at the mercy of the people whose acceptance and affirmation you crave. And odds are they'll never actually take you seriously because you don't take yourself seriously. Maybe that's what played into God's rejection of Saul as king. You can't lead people you're afraid of. That's what I've had to learn in this curacy. Like it doesn't do any good for anyone, for their leader to be afraid of whatever, of failure, of criticism, of rejection. No, God's man, God's woman, must be ruled and guided by faith, not fear. So what's becoming increasingly clear in this story is that Saul is unfit to be king. And why is that? It's because he's self-deceived. He's allowed criticism to turn his ego into a sort of totalitarian regime where he's filtering out all the data that he doesn't want to hear. That's what we can do, too. And we see that. Verse 19, Samuel says, you haven't obeyed the Lord. Verse 20, Saul says, yes, I did. And in verse 22, Samuel says, no, you didn't. He says, verse 22, 
What is more pleasing to the Lord? Your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice. Now, what does that mean? That sounds like something that should be written in script and placed in our vintage-looking kitchen, right? Obedience is better than sacrifice. What does it mean? It means God wants your heart, not just your actions. Let me explain it this way. I've been married for seven years, and I'm just beginning to learn how to give Mary Elizabeth birthday presents. Um, For the longest time, I just gave her what I wanted to give her. Like, I had just read a book, and I thought that she should read it, so I'm giving it to her. (laughs) Or I see a dress that I would love for her to wear, and so I I get it for her, right? Um, And she never acted disappointed. She's from the South, so she's always infuriatingly polite. Um, But about a year ago, it finally dawned on me that when it comes to gifts, Mary Elizabeth doesn't want me to break the bank or ask her directly what she wants, or even take a wild guess. No, she wants to know that I've been listening to her over the past year. So we go to a party, and she says, I love that coat. I wish I had a coat like that one. And so I fake a trip to the bathroom and scribble down on my phone real quick (laughs) what she wants, what color it is. And when her birthday finally comes around, boom, I give her the coat. And right now, we don't have to talk about how she forgot ever mentioning the coat to me and how she thought about returning it for the longest time. That's not the point. That would take hours of counseling. Understand. But what's important to glean from this is that love listens. Love listens. And that's what Saul is unwilling to even begin to understand. He doesn't love God. He loves himself. But he's deceived himself into thinking that he loves God because he gives God what he thinks he wants, but he doesn't have a love relationship with him. And because Saul refuses to change, Samuel says, God has rejected you as king. It's only at this point in the story that Saul begins to backpedal. When something is, when the idol is shattered, when something is taken away from him that he was clinging to, only then does he say, whoa. It's only at this point that Saul repents. He finally comes clean in verse 24. I have sinned. But even this is riddled with insincerity. He says in verse 30, I know I have sinned, but please at least honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel by coming back with me so that I can worship the Lord your God. (laughs) Saul is still self-obsessed, self-absorbed. He doesn't want to change. He just wants to save face. He wants to be seen with Samuel and praised by the people. But this isn't real repentance. It's just another manipulative ploy. It's masquerading. You see, for repentance to be real, 
there needs to be three things. Sorrow, a turning away from evil, and a decisive movement in a new direction. Sorrow, turning away from evil, decisive movement in a new direction. Saul shows none of these, but you know who does? It's God. In fact, the only person who repents in this entire story is God. And that doesn't mean that God changed his mind, but it does mean that God changed his actions. Think about it. God is the only one who says, I'm sorry, in this story. In verse 11, he tells Samuel that he's sorry. Literally, in the Hebrew, he repents that he ever made Saul king. Second, he's the only one who turns away from evil. The only person Saul turns away from is God. And so God turns away from him, rejects him. And who in this story makes a decisive movement in a new direction? (laughs) Only God. When Saul refuses to change, God gives the kingdom to someone else. In chapter 16, next week, God finds a man after his own heart. A man who will love him enough to listen to him and obey what he says. It's David. And he wasn't perfect. Far from perfect. But he was humble. And on a particular occasion, when his own sin brought God's wrath down on the people, this is what he said. Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me instead. That's a true king. A true king makes obedience his priority. A true king takes sin seriously. And most importantly, a true king takes the fall for his people. He doesn't throw them under the bus. He says, let your hand be against me instead. But ultimately, this judgment did never fall on David. It fell on Jesus. And that's what Paul says is absolutely central to the Bible in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ, literally the king, that the king died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. So our story doesn't have to end in rejection because we have a king who's taken the fall for us. He's a king who loves you and accepts you and can change you. You see, we're like Saul. We want to be king. But when we're the king, even though there might be lots of fun, lots of money, lots of connections for a while, in the end, it makes us absolutely miserable and separated from the God who sets his love on us. Saul might be the king that we want, the king who lets us get away with certain things, the king who says, I'm never going to tell you how to live your life. 
the king who does things ahead of us that are evil, that sort of paves the way for us to do the same. Saul might be the king that we want, but Jesus is the king we need. And whoever believes in him will never be rejected.